Good morning again. If you have a Bible, you can open it to Luke chapter 15. And if you don't have a Bible, we've got some under the chairs. You can probably see one nearby. If you want to follow along with us, we'll be on page 874 in the Black Bibles that you'll see under those chairs. Page 874 is Luke 15. And we're in the series we're calling Meet Jesus. And our goal here is that we would see true pictures of Jesus from the primary sources um, that we would understand who he really is and be able to differentiate that from kind of all the myths and fairy tales we've heard about Jesus uh, in our culture. And so we want to have a clarity about who he is for those of us that maybe don't, don't know Jesus, have never followed Jesus, but also for those of us that are followers of Christ, that we would more clearly understand what it means to know him and to love him. And so in this Meet Jesus series, we've been in Luke, we're going to transition to Acts here in a little while where we're, we're going to look at some sermons from the book of Acts, which is also written by Luke as well. Um, this week, we're, we're looking at one of the most famous stories in the book of Luke. We're calling it Jesus Seeks the Lost, and what we're going to see is the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin. This leads right into the parable of the two lost brothers, and we'll look at that one next week. So that's got a lot more detail, and we'll save that one for next week. This week, we'll look at how Jesus values and seeks the loss and how he defends that practice with these two parables. Um, you'll notice in the context here, uh, it's very important, there's an a increasing conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. And so we have at the very beginning of our passage, it'll say that the religious leaders were grumbling at Jesus because he loved, uh, received, ate with, basically was friendly with sinners. And so we see throughout the book of Luke this increasing conflict and Jesus always defending to the religious leaders that God values sinners, that he's a God that seeks the lost. So let's read from Luke 15, verses 1 through 10. Luke chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So... He told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let me pray for us and then we'll look at the text in more detail. God, we thank you for your word, and we receive it as a gift from you. We thank you that you give us direction. You tell us um, who you are. You reveal your character to us in Jesus. We pray that you would give us open minds and open hearts, that we would be receptive, that we would hear you, that we would pay attention to the goodness you have for us, and we we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to turn your attention just for a second to some books I've got here on the stage. If you want to check these out, I've got three books that are about how those that have faith in Jesus can share their faith in an authentic way. Um, In our day and age, none of us want to be pushy or belligerent with our faith, but if we really value 
Jesus. We want to share that hope we have with other people. And so these books are very helpful. I've quoted several times uh, during this series, Learning Evangelism from Jesus, which is a great book here by Jaron Bars. Uh, also a good book is The Unbelievable Gospel by Jonathan Dodson. And I've got Evangelism by Max Stiles. But you can check those out if you're interested. Also, if you're coming from it from a perspective of one who does not have faith or skeptical, these books are very helpful. They've been very helpful to me in my faith journey. One is called The Reason for God by Tim Keller. The other is called The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. Uh, both of these lay out in helpful ways uh, the case for belief in Jesus. Um, so I just want to recommend those to you. You can come check those out if you're interested in, in ordering one of those or, or buying one of those for yourself. Um, but as I thought about Jesus's value on the lost and what we see here in these parables, I was remembering a time when I was in San Antonio with my family and we were trying to find our car parked in a parking garage. Have any of you ever been to San Antonio, first of all, or some of you have been to San Antonio. I guess San Antonio doesn't really matter that much for the story, but have you ever been in a parking garage where you weren't sure where your car was? It'd be very frustrating. And we went to this uh, choir event that my daughter was in. It was just last summer, and we'd had, you know, three different cars there because, you know, wife and daughter were there early, and then the rest of the family came later, and then some friends came from out of town. So we spent all day together, had some fun, ate together, and now it was time to leave. And so uh, we got one group to one car, they drove off. We got another group to another car, they drove off. And then it was me and some of the girls, and we had the final car, and we were going to the parking garage by the mall. You know what I'm talking about? There's this downtown mall by the convention center. It's got a great, convenient parking garage there. Um, so I remembered, yeah, I just, you know, it's just right by the mall entrance. So I went into the mall, came out the entrance, and I'm thinking it's it's got to be on this middle deck here. You know, the car's got to be here. And I Walked all the way around and didn't see it. Um, and I'm, you know, clicking the horn, the horn thing. I can't find it. And I'm like, okay, well, maybe I'm just off a level. So I climbed up a level, you know, one, one level higher on the stairs. Again, walked all the way around and, and didn't see it. I was like, well, that's really weird. Maybe it's down a level. So I walked all the way down a level and walked all the way around and again, didn't see it. I thought, well, maybe it's on the roof. But I would have remembered if it was on the roof, right? There's daylight up there. That, like, that would have stuck out. It wasn't up there. And I kept looking and kept looking, and, and it was the summer, right? So it was 100 degrees. It was hot. It was starting to get frustrating. Kept looking, kept searching. And finally, I don't, I don't even remember how we figured this out, but somehow we figured out that there are two parking garages at the mall in San Antonio. <laughs> They're like on either side of the mall. So it's not enough to just walk in the mall and go out to the parking garage. You have to know which side of the mall you're on. So finally figured that out. Finally you know, got out to the other parking garage and only had to circle two or three times then before we finally found our car. But I was thinking about it this week because the car is very valuable to me, right? For, for one thing, I couldn't have gotten home without the car because everybody else had already left. But also, it's a, it's a valuable thing. Uh, 2003 Mitsubishi Galant, I mean, it's a hot car. A lot of people would want it. But it was especially valuable to me because it was my car. If I had just lost a penny and it had gone down the gutter at the parking garage, I, I probably would have just left it, right? I would have just been like, ah, oh, bummer, lost a penny. But this is my car. It's valuable to me. And in this story, Jesus is saying sinners, this class, this category of people that the leadership of the day says are not valuable, Jesus says they are valuable. This is a very important lesson for us to get here. And it's a lesson that Jesus hits again and again in the book of Luke, but he hits it really clearly here. Um, and so the first thing that I want us to see is that seeking the lost is countercultural. 
what Jesus is doing is he's valuing the unvalued people in society. He's doing a thing that doesn't make sense in the context of the first century Jewish world. The Jewish leaders were not just the leaders of their religion, they were also the leaders of their culture. Now, our culture is much more fragmented today, and we have little subcultures here and there. You know, you've got religious groups here and irreligious groups there, and different people lead different communities, and every community is a little different. But this was a much more monocultural, kind of singular worldview that they had here in Jerusalem, and they did not value sinful people. They said, those are the bad people, don't touch them, don't associate with them, don't be around them, be religious like us, keep the rules, and if you haven't kept the rules, well, too bad for you, you're an outsider, you don't count, you're not valuable. So Jesus here is is going against the grain. He's pushing back against the religious leaders very directly, very explicitly saying, God has a different value than you people who say you speak for God. You people believe you speak for God, and I'm pushing against that culture that you are establishing, saying God has a different culture, a different set of values. I grabbed a picture here of a vehicle that seems to be going the wrong way down the highway. Uh, Have you all ever seen that? It's kind of scary, right? You're driving down the road, and all of a sudden, a car is coming at you, and you're like, whoa, what's happening? Um, I think, as I looked closer, there's actually no driver, so I think that truck's being towed, so it's not really going the wrong way. But it makes a great picture, doesn't it? And that's a scary reality when, when traffic is cutting against the grain, and, and Jesus is freaking these guys out. I mean, it's like he's driving a car down the wrong way of the highway. He is countering their culture. He's countering the value system that they have uh, set up. In this place, and this time, the religious leaders led the culture, and they did not value sinners. They only valued their own way of doing things, keeping the law, looking good on the outside, having it together in a public way. So first of all, we need to ask the question, why? Why does Jesus value these people? Um, Verse 1 and 2 says, The tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees with the scribes and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Um, Eating together was a very intimate environment. It, It was much more close and social, and it meant a lot more, I think, even in their culture than it does for us. So basically, the idea here is that Jesus is befriending sinners, and the Pharisees did not believe that that was okay. Why why did Jesus think it was okay? I think when we stand back and we look at the scope of Scripture, we recognize that Jesus believed what God believes, and that is that God has made us in his image, and we have value to God because we're made in his image. We're not valuable to God based on how many good things or bad things we've done. We're valuable to God based on being made in his image. Now, we rebel against God because we've sinned, and we begin to fracture and mar and mess with that image. Just like a a famous painting, a, a vandal could come in and spray paint on a famous painting. You could still see the glory of what the famous painting was, At the same time, you could recognize that the image has been marred. It's been vandalized. Well, that's what we've done to our image, the reflection of God's character and his goodness that God has made us with. But we need to recognize that all people are valuable to God because we're made in his image, and all people have rebelled against God because we're sinners. The Pharisees were confused about this. The Pharisees thought we're valuable to God because we don't sin, and the sinners are not valuable because they do sin. But the Bible is clear that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
So even if you don't sin in obvious public ways, even if people can't see your sin, even if you appear to be an upstanding citizen that's got it all together, Jesus in the Beatitudes and many other places confronted the religious people of the day and said, no, you're not perfect. You still have a heart that doesn't love people perfectly all the time, a heart that's selfish, a heart that doesn't always do the right thing. And so this story is challenging for religious people and for non-religious people, for people that believe that we've always done the right thing and kept our stuff together, and for people that feel great shame. The gospel addresses both kinds of people. And the gospel says to the people that, that think they're righteous, you're not really righteous. We've all sinned. We've all failed. And to the people that think they're so shameful that God could never love them, the gospel says, no, you have value in God's eyes because you're made in the image of God. And the climax of this story, the direction that this story is going, is that Jesus is going to die on the cross for sinners. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So we have value because we're made in the image of God, and we're so valuable that he was willing to die for us, that Jesus gave his life to take our sins upon himself and give us his sonship and his righteousness so that we can be adopted as sons and daughters of God. That's the gospel story, and that applies to people that think they do everything right and people that live in great shame because of uh, the pain and the terrible things that they've done. Both sides are addressed. So Jesus is friends with these sinners, tax collectors, just to define that a little bit for you. Um, I mean, nobody likes to pay taxes today, but it was even worse in that time. These were guys that were Jewish guys that had compromised and were cooperating with the Roman uh, oppressive empire. And so for one thing, they had betrayed their people by cooperating with Rome. But secondly, they were extortionists, kind of like the mafia or something, right? They, they took extra money. So they were given an authority by Rome to get money out of the citizens. So that made them traitors of their people. And then they used that authority to take extra money. So they were just widely and publicly known for cheating and extorting people. So a big public category sinner, and then he just clarifies it and says, and sinners, right? So it wasn't just tax collectors. It was all kinds of sinners. It was those that lived outside of God's law, those that were prostitutes, those that were immoral in all kinds of different ways. In this day and age, the line was clear because of God's law. There were people that were publicly righteous in the sense that they appeared righteous, and then there were people that were publicly sinners. And Jesus embraced, received, ate with, made friends with sinners. And we need to wrestle with this and ask ourselves as a people, are we as a culture, as a church of Jesus, are we the kind of place where sinners feel received and welcomed, and loved. And we also need to ask that question of ourselves personally. Am I the kind of person? Are you the kind of person that receives and loves those uh, that seem to be sinners, that seem to be wandering far from God? So we need to have the same value system as Jesus. We need to recognize that seeking the lost is counterculture, and it cuts against the grain. No matter where you are, even if you're in a very anti-religious setting, um, you may be called on to, to love those who are fundamentalists, right? Who are self-righteous. Uh, or if you're in a very rigid, righteous sort of setting, you may be challenged by God to love those and value those counterculturally who are obvious sinners. But God calls on us to love all people, to show people dignity the way that Jesus does because they're made in the image of God, to value them because of who they are in relation to God, not because of what they've done. Because again, we've all, we've all sinned. 
So we should seek to be loving and kind, but recognize that there's always going to be a countercultural pushback, right? There's always going to be a pushback when we seek to love the lost and pursue the lost. And I want us to, to recognize that. There's always going to be difficult that difficulty that will arise out of that situation. Romans 12, 18 says that we should seek to live peaceably with all men as much as is possible. But we can't always do that. Sometimes there's going to be conflict. Sometimes there's going to be difficulty. And just recognize that if you want to be like Jesus and love those that society doesn't love or value, society's going to push back on you. Society's going to be frustrated with you for not keeping the rules. And Jesus was willing to pay that price. Um, I would say if you're a conservative person, a person of traditional values, a person of strict uh, moral upbringing, for one thing, it's good to be moral. Don't hear me the wrong way. That's a beautiful and good thing. God says there's great blessings in obeying his law. Proverbs is full of the blessings of listening to God's voice and doing what he says. But I would challenge you to recognize that your identity is not found in how often you do right things, how well you do right things, your report card before God. Your identity should be found in being a child of God who's forgiven because of what Jesus does. And because of that, you want to do right things. And I would challenge you, if you're in that category, to seek the lost in a way that you take time to understand those people that don't agree with you. Take time to understand and value and show dignity to those people that don't vote the same way that you do, that don't live the same way that you do, that don't um, worship the same way that you do. Jesus models for us here showing dignity to those people. Is it okay to disagree with people? Sure, it's okay to disagree with people. But Jesus disagreed with people in an agreeable way. He showed dignity to them. He befriended them. He cared for them. I would say if you're a more progressive person, recognize that there's a backlash that's happening in our culture where we tend to think that because Jesus befriended sinners, that befriending sinners is the magic silver bullet that solves everything in life. And I just want to warn you of of that. It's to the point in some circles where it's a heresy. The heresy is that there's no right or wrong. The heresy is that there is no such thing as sin anymore. Here's the logic. Jesus befriended sinners. That means we're supposed to befriend sinners. That means we're never supposed to ever say anything is wrong. That means we're never supposed to judge anything. We're never supposed to think that there's such a thing as right and wrong. And, And that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is able to befriend sinners because he paid the price for their sins on the cross. In the same way, we're able to befriend sinners because they're made in the image of God, because God is seeking them, and he wants to bring us into his work of seeking them. So befriending sinners doesn't mean we turn being friendly into a means of grace. Means of grace is like the historic term for how do people get grace, right? Well, the Bible says people get grace through prayer and the the preaching of God's word. Understanding that we're sinners before a holy God and we need God to forgive us as he has placed our sins upon Jesus on the cross. And so then there's this big word that Jesus uses in this story today, repentance. So don't miss the word repentance. God calls on those of us that are publicly sinful and those of us that are secretly sinful. He calls on all of us to repent. That means literally turning from your sin, thinking it can save you, and turning to Jesus and trusting Jesus to save you. That's what the, reper- uh, the word repentance means. And again, there are these extremes in culture. One extreme says sin is no big deal, so you don't need to repent because God doesn't care. The other side is sin is a big deal, but we're perfect, so we don't need to repent. 
right? And so you see both extremes in culture denying repentance. Jesus says all of us need to repent, and heaven will rejoice as we turn and trust in Jesus. Romans 1.16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So Jesus uses friendliness. The gospel is what saves people, though. So we want to be friendly like Jesus, but not begin to think that friendliness is what saves people. No, friendliness is the manner in which we express the truth. And the truth is we're all sinners. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God loves us in Jesus. The next thing I want us to understand is that seeking the lost is hard work. It takes a lot of effort. Um, it's, it's work. We're going to have to sweat. We're going to have to try. Um, it requires us noticing people. It requires us taking initiative to care for people. Um, Jaron Bars, in his book, Learning Evangelism from Jesus, he made this interesting note that uh, there was this switch that started to take place in art in the 18th and 19th centuries where shepherd scenes began being drawn in a much more kind of pretty, peaceful, placid way. Um, He said that uh, shepherds became almost effeminate and soft in the paintings that you see from the 18th to the 19th century. And so that's kind of the classic art we're more familiar with. We think of a shepherd as this kind of, you know, sweet, hugging a little lamb, and it looks like a 14-year-old boy that's never worked a day in his life holding the sheep, you know. Um, I found a picture of a real shepherd, and he's on this craggy hill. It's uh, some mountains in the background, some boulders. Uh, he's an older man. Uh, he, you can tell his hands are leathery. He's been working hard. He's been out in the elements that's what a shepherd is. A shepherd is someone that works hard outside. It's not like, uh, again, like Bars talks about in some of the artwork, it's not like this soft, pretty boy that's never worked before. It, it's hard work. And that's the story he, dis, he uh, describes here, the hard work of a shepherd chasing after a sheep that is valuable to him. Verse 3 says, he told them this story. Verse 4, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he's lost One of them does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. So they didn't graze sheep within a fenced-in area like we do today. They just grazed them in open country. So the shepherd had to keep track of them. It was a lot farther that the sheep could wander. And so he has to chase far and wide to find this lost sheep. He says in verse 5, when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I found my sheep that was lost. We'll talk more about the joy in a minute, but I just want you to remember the image of a shepherd who's paying the price of his own time and sweat and toil to chase what is valuable to him. And Jesus is saying, that's what God is like. Heaven is pursuing lost sheep. We are the lost sheep, and God is pursuing us at great cost to himself. He uses a second story to reinforce it. He uses the story of the woman finding the coins. He says, what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, and I need to make an aside here. I said when I was in a parking garage, if I was looking for my car, the car was valuable to to me, but if I'd lost a penny, I wouldn't worry about it, right? Well, these coins are much more valuable than a penny, right? We might want to translate it like she has 10 gold bars, right? I mean, she was like, this is important, valuable treasure here. These are important silver coins. So she lights a lamp, it says. She sweeps the house. She seeks diligently until she finds it. She seeks diligent, diligently. That's, that's hard work. That's her 
sweating and getting down on her knees and digging through corners. Remember, houses in this day and time didn't have electric lights. Um, They didn't have a solid floor. So there's dirt, there's cracks, there's holes, there's crevices. This is not just like sweeping your tile floor, right? I mean, this is hard work. And she's digging in little cracks and crevices and digging under boards and digging down into the dirt. She's lighting a lamp because their homes weren't well lit. They didn't have a lot of windows. They didn't have a lot of good viewing in there. She's working. She's sweating. She's pursuing this coin because it's valuable to her. So again, we'll, we'll be like that if we believe the same things Jesus believes. If we actually believe that people are valuable to God, if we actually believe that people matter because they're made in the image of God and they deserve dignity and effort and love and time, then we'll be like Jesus. We'll spend our effort and our time pursuing people. If we don't believe that, we'll just be passive and we won't we won't really care. I would differentiate this for you. I said this a couple of weeks ago as well in a a different way, but sometimes if you're an introvert, uh, at this point, you just start to heap guilt on yourself saying, oh no, I don't talk to enough people. What I would say is this, we want to express initiative. We want to notice people. We want to do the hard work of pursuing people. If you're an introvert, that'll be like the one person you know, but go deep with that person, right? And on the flip side, if you're an extrovert, you, you might use this as an opportunity to be judging the rest of us, right? And be thinking, yeah, I care about people because I'm always shaking hands and kissing babies and meeting people. If, if you're an extrovert, don't confuse that with actually seeking the lost, right? Like do the hard work of actually getting to know people and caring for people and listening to their story and showing them dignity and pausing and giving them the gift of time, right? So introverts, we might be scared of people. Extroverts, we might think we're doing it because we know 100 people. Both sides, I think we have something to learn here. Um, here's, here's a way we can audit our lives. So if I were to look at your calendar or you were to look at my calendar, we had some transparency. Would you see appointments on my calendar? Would I see appointments on your calendar that demonstrate that we're doing the hard work of seeking the lost, that we're taking time for people? that we're investigating, we're pursuing people. Would you see that on our calendars? How about your bank statement, your credit card statement? Like, what do you spend your money on? Does the way that you spend your money, would that reflect an attitude that Jesus has? Jesus believed that the Father valued those that were made in his image, and he took time to pursue people, to receive sinners, to befriend outsiders. Does your, does your spending reflect that? And finally, your emotions. If I, if I were to sit you on the, the psychotherapist's couch and ask you what you're worried about, what you're praying about, what's weighing heavy on your heart, would, would lost and hurting people be a, be a part of that? Would, that? would that be a part of the mix? Do you care? Are you giving your emotions over to these things as well? Again, I believe Jesus models for us initiative. As the great shepherd, Jesus is the one that pursued us. And so we will therefore be pursuing other people as well. I want to clarify this and and, uh, adjust it just a little bit for you. Jesus, God, is ultimately the one seeking the lost. And we're along for the ride. We get to to be caught up in daddy's business. It's like take your kid to work day, right? That's what we do as, as the children of God. We get to go to work with our father. He's the one that's actually seeking the lost. And so part of this is we need to have a listening ear to the Holy Spirit and recognize 
when our Heavenly Father says, I'm, I'm pursuing that person, we need to be aware, we need to be prayerful, we need to be listening, and we need to join him in his business. Two of the most common evangelism verses in the New Testament really make it very reactive. It's not an, they're not initiative verses. This, this are, these are two verses that talk about evangelism for the average person, right? 1 Peter 3.15 says, always be prepared to give a reason, to give an answer for the hope that's within you. So Peter is talking in the context of persecution. You live in a broken world and people are picking on you and you've got diseases and you've got heartache and you've got broken relationships. You need to be ready to give a reason to people why you actually have hope in this world. That's one of the most common ways we understand evangelism in the New Testament, 1 Peter 3, 15. Be prepared, be ready. When you see your father pursuing someone that you can join in and lovingly pursue them along with him. And then another verse that's great is Colossians 4, 6. Paul says this, speech, uh, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, and know how to answer each person. So again, it's an, it's an answering situation. So it's interesting to me, we see again, we see modeled by Jesus here this pursuit of the lost, this shepherd that's seeking the lost, and I believe we should be a part of that as well. But then when you read the New Testament, 1 Peter 3.15, Colossians 4.6, it phrases it like, here's the ordinary way that's going to work in your life. People are going to want to ask you, like, why do you have faith in a faithless world? Why do you have hope in a world of brokenness? Why do you love Jesus in, in a world that seems like the universe is out of control and evil is running rampant? So, so God's going to give you opportunities. That's what Peter and Paul are saying. Those opportunities are to come. Be ready. Have an answer ready for this hope that you have in Jesus. The last thing that we're going to see is that seeking the lost is joyful. It's something worth celebrating. It's something to be excited about. In verse 7, he says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So Jesus, for one thing, is establishing God cares about hurting people that repent and turn back to Jesus. Instead of trusting in their sin, they now trust in Jesus. But he also kind of gives a jab at the religious people. Do you see that? He says there's more rejoicing over this sinner that repents than the 99 people that don't need to repent. Now, I, I need to explain to you here that Jesus is using hyperbole, and Jesus believes very deeply that those other 99 people need to repent. And he's using this story to show them that. He's explicitly condemning their lack of love for others. And so he's saying, there's no joy over you that don't need to repent. There's no joy for you. There's a party for these sinners because they recognize they need to repent. They're turning. They're letting go of their sin. They're trusting in Jesus. There's no joy for you that think you got all your stuff together. That's one of the great dangers of the shift that's happening in the modern church today as we're shifting from since there is grace and since Jesus is nice to sinners, therefore, the syllogism goes, there's no such thing as sin anymore. When there's no such thing as sin anymore, there's no such thing as repenting. There's no real turning to Jesus if you're not really turning from your sin any longer. And so we need to recognize here that we're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And we want to be the one sheep that recognizes that and repents and turns to Jesus. We don't want to be the 99 that say, I have nothing to repent over. I haven't done anything wrong. I'm one of the good people. I have a picture here of kids at a birthday party. Um, this is the kind of picture that Jesus is giving, right? They're lighting candles. They're, 
making, they're filling up balloons, they're eating a cake, they're singing. Jesus again and again is saying, this is what it looks like when people turn from their sin and trust in Jesus. It's a party. It's a celebration. It's something to be uh, excited about. It's something to rejoice over. The, the shepherd that finds a sheep brings his friends along and says, rejoice with me. And the woman that finds her coin, she, she invites her friends to rejoice with her. Jesus is inviting the religious people of that day to rejoice with him that the lost are being found. So my question is for us, are we rejoicing? Or are we standing off to the side like we'll see in next week's story, pouting and not wanting to have anything to do with this God that would party over sinners, thinking that we are so righteous that we don't need to party ourselves? Again, Jesus is explicitly challenging the religious people of the day that believe they have a righteousness of their own. And I want to lovingly challenge you as well. If you, if you think you're okay because you've made all the right choices, Jesus says, no, no one, no one has made all the right choices. No one is wholly righteous. We, we all need an invasion from the outside. We all need this alien, this external righteousness of Christ. We all need his help. We all need his intervention. We all need to be pursued by the great shepherd who loves us. I want to wrap up by looking at this other picture in the scriptures of of God as a shepherd. Psalm 23 is one of the most famous psalms. Many of you probably know it, or maybe you've memorized a portion of it. But for those of us that are wandering, it, it brings us great hope. It brings us great relief. Because we recognize, even though I'm wandering, and I've been eating poison, I've been drinking from bitter wells, and I've, I've done this and I've done that, I, I have a God who loves me, who's pursuing me in Jesus. I have a God who is like a good shepherd, who leads me beside still waters, who brings me to green pastures. Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. It's not for our name. It's for his name. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. And I just want to give you the good news this morning that that those can be your words as well. There's a beautiful turning that takes place here in the psalm where he's talking about God in the abstract and saying, the Lord is my shepherd, the Lord does these things, the Lord does these things, and then he switches to the personal language of, you are with me. He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. That can be your prayer. You don't have to just sit and observe this God that is shepherd-like but you can know that God personally through Jesus. You can be another sinner that recognizes, man, I can't do this on my own. I'm going I'm to turn from all these other false saviors. I'm going to trust in Jesus. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I have hope. I will not fear because you are with me. You can have that kind of direct relationship of trust with God through Jesus. Let me pray for us and then we'll respond in worship. God, we pray that you would teach us what it means to know that you are with us. God, some of us are going through horrible things right now, things that are testing our faith, things that are testing our false saviors. 
And God, when we're rattled, I pray that we would be able to say along with the psalmist that you are with me. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. God, help us, meet us here by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.